faithfully for the last 10 or 11 years, um, we as a staff take Mondays off. So that's that's Mark Bullion, our associate pastor who's in the other room teaching the kids. Um, and then Janelle is the director of operations, and then myself. We, we have faithfully take Mondays off. And so Janelle and I call it our date day, where we just go do something fun. It's our little Sabbath. And since COVID, she got addicted to golf. And it's, I've been the benefactor of that. What husband doesn't want to play golf with his wife? It's fun. And she's gotten pretty darn good beat me the other day. So don't tell her I told you that. Um, So last Monday, we're playing this little small course. It's a par three, an executive course. And if you're a non-golfer, that means it's about half the yardage of a regular golf course. And it's a fun little golf course. And so we're on hole number two. I don't know if I told you this, but on hole number two, about a year ago, I got a hole in one. Do you remember that? So thank you. Humility, right? And uh, it's a hole where you hit off kind of a a hill over water and then try to get it on the green. And so it's about 110, 115 yards. And usually I get a nice little, you get the ball up in the air and land on the, the green, hopefully. So last Monday, on the other side of the water, there was a flock of Canadian geese, and they were feasting away, and I thought, they're safe, they're safe. So I get in position to do my shot, and I hit a line drive, and it went just whistling across the water. It hit the bank ricocheted and bam hit this goose right in the noggin i mean you could hear it just thud and i thought i just killed a goose like i hate canadian geese but i wouldn't want to hurt them on purpose right and um this little dude that was didn't see it coming he kind of looked around like what the heck and i thought he was going to just like fall over and be dead but he actually just kind of shook it off and started eating again i was like Tough, tough. What's in the head of a a goose? Like a little mini helmet underneath the feathers or something? What does that have to do with the message I'm about to give you? Absolutely nothing. It it was a good story, and I got your attention. Or maybe if I want to try to mesh it together, it's his little sore noggin and mine after studying Romans 9, 10, and 11 and trying to bring you something worthwhile each week. So we are in a series in the book of Romans, and we've titled it Not Ashamed, because Paul in Romans 1 says he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And so we're not ashamed either. But Paul's letter to the Romans is such a deep dive into the heart of the finished work of Jesus. I don't know if you know this or not, but Paul spent three years with Jesus after Jesus uh, appeared to him on the Damascus road. Three years, just like the other apostles walked with Jesus, he spent three years by himself where Jesus downloaded the, this Paul's amazing understanding of the good news of Jesus. And so I think when I started chapter nine, we talked about anybody ever climbed a 14er in Colorado. And if you had, you get to the, you go all the way up and you get to the summit. 
And I said that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are like climbing up this, this huge theological doctrinal hill, mountain, and you get to the top in 9, 10, and 11 because next week it starts getting more practical in Romans 12 and so forth. It's very, Paul becomes very practical. But he's been on a roll, man. Paul is, he's a genius. Like his mind I can't wait to sit down in heaven and just talk with Paul. Like, that's going hopefully, there'll be a long line for that probably, but we got eternity to do it. I'll, he'll fit me in his Google calendar, I'm sure, at some point. But um, I've titled each one of these messages in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Our Roots. Chapter 9 was our roots and our salvation. Last week was our roots and our mission. This week is our roots and his covenant. Um, God is a a covenant-making God. A covenant is different than a contract in that a covenant is is not, a, a contract is based on ifs. If you do this, I'll do that. A covenant is based upon a promise. When, when a husband and a wife get married, they make a covenant. They promise to do something till death do you part. They're not promising to feel or if you do this, if you promise to take out the trash and do the dishes, then I'll, I'll be a better wife or husband or fill in the blank. That's not covenant. God's a covenant-making God. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden. He made a covenant with Noah after the flood. He makes a covenant with Abraham, which we're going to talk a lot about today. And then he, he made a covenant with David. And he told David that there would always be a king on your throne. And all the covenants get fulfilled in the eternal covenant between the Father, Son, and the Spirit in the new covenant, in what Jesus did for us in ushering in the new covenant. More than any other sections of Paul's writing, if you're new to the Bible, Paul wrote 13 of the letters in the the New Testament. He wrote 13 of those. So a huge portion of what we have as our New Testament today. 9, 10, and 11 of Romans is probably the most in-depth about God's plan for his covenant people, the Jewish people, his covenant with Israel, which Paul was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews. Now, hear me on this. I personally, I think... Do not, I don't believe it's a good practice to try to, when we read the judgment passages of Israel and their failure to keep their, their covenant with God, reading modern day world into that. I don't think that's a good practice. And Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is talking about such things. And we can miss, we can miss the point if we try to read everything in the world in, in these judgment scriptures of Israel. Now, this is not a perfect illustration, um, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. <laughs> I think it's, it's well, let me first remind you of something. If you've had kids or you're part of a family, you, it, it's typical that the oldest child, the parents are more strict on. Anybody agree? <laughs> really agreed. Um, you're more strict on, on, the, on the oldest. And now this is where the illustration falls short. God's a perfect parent, right? He's a perfect parent. He knows how to, how to parent all of his kids. 
But I think there's an understanding of how we as Christians who are not Jewish are to see the Jewish people in the covenant that God made with them as kind of our older brother. Kind of the older brother. It doesn't mean we get to be the spoiled last born and do whatever we want, but, but I think that's part of understanding judgment passages of our older brother, so to speak. Now, God chose the Jewish people out of all the pagan nations to be his covenant people, his special covenant people. That was ultimately going to find its fulfillment in Jesus. And listen, this is not a political, ideological message at all. We're trying to deal with what did the Apostle Paul write and how does that affect us today. But, but it does beg the question, why have the Jewish people been hated for thousands of years? Well, obviously, in what's going on in the world today, there's an ideological situation. There's there's politics, there's land, there's all this. But there's something spiritual that, that happens behind the scenes in this. In this and that's kind of more where I want to look at, at, at help us today as we read Romans 11 and we look at the news or we see what's going on in the world and see our calling to the world, not just the Jewish people, but to how much God loves the Palestinians too. Like, let's don't ever, ever, we're not taking sides. We want to follow God. We want to follow his plan for humanity through the person of his son, Jesus. But the reality is Jesus in the gospel comes from the womb of Israel. God used Israel. That does not make them perfect or, you know, not accountable for anything that they do either. We follow Jesus. We don't follow a nation. We don't follow a politician. We don't follow an ideology. Our our prayer is always that our ideology would be shaped by good theology, by true theology, not the other way around, that our ideologies shape our theologies. And that's what happens so much. And that's why there's so much discord in the world right now. So our roots in his covenant, Romans 11. I'm going to go under three headings. This is weird for how I usually teach and come up with outlines, but I figure in the deep end of the pool, like Romans 11, I'm going to leave myself a little leeway here to work this thing out. First thing, if you're taking notes, is this, questions and answers. Questions and answers. I have a hunch when you're reading Romans 9, 10, and 11, that the the specific church that Paul was writing to in Rome the Christian church, that through his rhetorical questions that the church in Rome was, they had wondered, has God moved on from the Jewish people? I think they were, they were has God moved on? Because why did most of the, the, as a nation, as a whole, why did they reject Jesus? And so did God move on from them? So there's questions and answers to this. In verse 1 and 2, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Far from it. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God keeps his covenant. God's the ultimate promise keeper. When he makes a promise, he, he keeps it 
Always keep that in mind throughout all that we're trying to unpack this morning. In the book of Genesis, I read this a couple weeks ago. It's not on your notes, but if you're taking notes, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God calls this man named Abram, who was worshiping pagan moon gods and all kinds of stuff, just like all the rest of the world that had, had, had fallen away again from their creator after the flood. So he, he picks Abram. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and, I, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse the one who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Apostle Paul says that when, when that was spoken to Abraham, that the whole world would be blessed through his, for God's blessing on Abraham and making him a nation, all the peoples of the world were going to be blessed. And Paul says that's the first preaching of the gospel, so to speak. That he says that in the book of Romans. And, and the reason he m- means that is because from Abraham's offspring is going to ultimately come Jesus, who is the Savior of, he's the Savior of the world. Not just, not just one people group or that, that group, he's the Savior of the world. Important to remember that. So in, uh, later in Genesis, early in Genesis and chapter 17, he says this, I will establish my covenant between um, me and you and your descendants. And after you, after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. An eternal covenant is what he made with Abraham. God's the ultimate promise keeper. He's going to keep his promise. And then Paul goes on, I'm not going to read it, but he talks about how in Elijah's day, the prophet Elijah in the book of Kings, 1 Kings, all of Israel started worshiping Baal and in, in, in foreign false gods. And Elijah, the prophet, is just crying out, I'm the only one who's, who's keeping covenant with you, God. And God says, no, I've reserved 7,000 people, a remnant who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Then he goes on, he says, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, since otherwise grace is no longer grace. His point is, you know, in this rhetorical question, has God moved on from the Jewish people? Well, the the apostles were all Jewish. Paul himself was Jewish. And the early church was Jewish. So there were many people who had followed Jesus and embraced the gospel. That's his point. And if you take a note, in Galatians 3, he talks about how Jesus is the seed of Abraham and that there no longer is Jew or Gentile, but we're one in Christ. We're one in the Messiah. And that because of our faith in Jesus we, are, we can call Abraham our father as well. That's what the Apostle Paul said. All right, don't weird out on this heading, but the next one is trees and branches. <laughs> it's good, trust me. 
This part is good. You're going to be asked what you learned in church today, and you're going to say, trees and branches. I learned horticulture lessons. So he says this, I say then, did they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Far from it. But by their wrongdoing, check this, by their unbelief, salvation has come to the Gentiles or to the non-Jews to make them jealous. Now, if their wrongdoing proves to be riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Therefore, insofar as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I may move my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their rejection proves to be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It's a wowza. So think older brother with me for a second. Think the story of the prodigal son. If you don't know the, the Bible, you're unfamiliar, there's Jesus told a parable about a father who had two sons. And the younger brother one day does something that was terrible, culturally speaking. He goes to his father and he says, can I have my inheritance now? Kind of like, I wish you were dead, so can I have my inheritance now? And then, you know, I'm going to go on with my life. And the father gives his inheritance to the younger brother, but as well to the older brother. Gives them both all that he had, had, was saving for them. Jesus says that the younger brother went off and spent his inheritance on wild living and partying and just making it rain everywhere he went to the point where he was broke and he had spent everything and he was working in a, in a place where you know, he, he, his stomach was so hungry he wanted to eat the pig slop. And he has an aha moment and he says, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to ask to be one of his servants, one of his hired hands. Not to be his son, but to be his servant. It says that, that as he, he had come up with this little speech that he was going to tell his father. And the father was waiting on the front porch and as he saw this son, this lost son, this prodigal son, it says he ran to him. And before he could even get all his little speech out, he just grabbed him and he hugged him and he loved him and he embraced him. He was so happy to see him. He didn't lecture him, how dare you spend all that money I gave you. None of that because he loved his son so much. So then he says, kill the fattened calf. Let's throw a party. This son of mine who was, was dead has been found and the older brother stayed outside of the party. He wouldn't come in. And he, the father said, aren't you going to come in and celebrate? He says, no. And he says, I've been with you all this time. And you never threw a party for me. You never put a ring on my finger. You never killed the fattened calf for me. And he looks at the older brother because he was jealous. He was jealous of the father's love for this younger son. And he says that, Son, I've always been with you. I've always been with you. But this, your brother, this son of mine, he was dead, but he's been found. 
Celebrate with me. I think that's what Paul has in mind here when he's talking about moving his kinsmen to jealousy. Here's what we got to remember. Don't put God in the gospel in some theological box and say, aha, I got it all figured out. As soon as you think you got it all figured out, he's going to blow that box up because that's what he does. I'm grateful for that. He blew my box up in 2019 and been blowing it up every day since. And by blowing up your theological box, I believe he's simplifying and keeping it about the main things and about Jesus and what he's, what he's done. His mercy endures forever. It says over and over, his mercy endures forever. Jesus said, uh, learn this statement, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The book of James says that mercy triumphs over judgment. I think we have to be reminded of that because our first response when we're wronged is usually judgment, revenge, you get punched, you punch back, right? I mean, that's, that's our natural human response. I got good news. God's not like that. That is not God's go-to is to, to just judge and, 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 and punish. That's not how he rolls. We see that in the life of Jesus. We have to remember that we're not the final judge of anybody. I think that's part of Paul's heart here too. He's, he's taking his own kinsmen who have rejected the Messiah and said, I'm putting them in his hands. I'm putting him in the God of mercy's hands. Mercy is treating someone better than they deserve. That's what mercy really, really is. And I get asked this question a lot when somebody dies and people are unsure of this, their, whoever died's faith, you know, did they, and they'll say, Um, Did they know Jesus? And I always say this. I don't know if they knew Jesus or not, but he knows them. (laughs) And leave that into, we're not, we don't know what's always going on in people's life. I'm not trying to create some sense of false hope or anything like that, but I am trying to create a sense of real hope. That's what's more important. Jesus knows his people. So let's go back to trees and branches because you're wondering what the heck does that have to do with all that? Well, well, trees and branches is part of Paul's explanation of everything he just said. He says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are as well. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you're arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Thus our roots, salvation, etc. And he says, uh, you will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Again, something's going on in the Roman church. Put your put your your studying shoes, your listening shoes, and pretend that you're part of the Church of Rome who was questioning whether God had moved on from the Jewish people or not. He says, quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. Important pause. God didn't break them off; their unbelief broke them off. That's Paul's direct point here. He says, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. See then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. For otherwise, you too will be cut off. And they, they, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Mercy. For God is able to, to graft them in again. For if, you were, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? I'm parched after that. It's pretty cool that Paul uses this horticulture, say that word fast, horticulture illustration, this grafting in a wild olive branch into a cultivated branch. So what do you do when you study scripture sometime? You go to the Google. And I Googled grafting branches, two types of trees or bushes, branches together. I found something super, super cool. Which, which makes the light bulb go off on this passage. He, I'm quoting a guy who's wrote a, a blog about this. He said, if you want the vigor of a wild plum, something you'd get that no one's cultivating or fertilizing or any of that, but just grows naturally. If you want the vigor of a wild plum with the large sweet fruit of a farmer's market plum, love plums, by the way, you graft a branch of a wild plum into a cultivated one. That happens today. It's a, this ancient practice of grafting happens today. So you take the, the wild branch and you take the, the cultivated and you cut it open and slide that puppy in there and tape it up and let them grow together. How about a picture? This is a drawing that somebody did of how you graft. So the green branch is, would be the wild, like plum, and then the, you have the cultivated, that's the brown. And so you, you cut back a little bit, and then you put that branch in, you take a rubber band, and then over time, they learn to grow together, and you get the delicious vigor of a wild plum with your large, sweet, cultivated farmer's market plum. And we're all happy at that point in time. That's what Paul's trying to say. Again, what did I, what'd you learn in church today? Oh, I learned about cultivating wild plums. All right. As I was digging through this, I could have taken the out card and skipped over Romans 9, 10, and 11. I owe it to you to give you my very best on a weekly basis to not shy away from the difficult topics or difficult passages of Scripture. And let's face it, these are not easy passages. People have misunderstood, mistaught. Um, I easily could misteach it. Anybody can on this. But I think a lot of people try to stake claim on these types of passages of Scripture by their ism. They take their ism slide and they put it over top of a passage of Scripture, go, ah, that's, that's what that means. My ism tells me what's right. It could be Calvinism, Arminianism, Zionism, and whoop, this is what this means. What I'm honestly trying to do 
is to just be real and realize there are different angles that you can take and hopefully equip you to maybe desire to dig deeper a little bit yourself. But how many know salvation is a mystery and it's a miracle? And that's my third heading is mysteries and miracles. Paul says this, he says, for I do not want you brothers and sisters to be uninformed of this mystery. Because how many know everything I just read? That's pretty mysterious. Like what's going on here? So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Let me stop there if you want to hold that slide up for me. Talk about two things. What is the fullness of the Gentiles? What is the fullness of the Gentiles? I've heard a lot of interpretations of that, but I think I'm going to use the words of Jesus to what that means. Last week we talked about how Jesus told the disciples, he said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, to all peoples, then the end will come. Preach to all nations, and then the end will come. So we can hang our hat on that. We talked about people groups and, and how many unreached people groups are there. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that. Um, I believe that's what Paul has in mind, what the fullness of the Gentiles is. It's this, this taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Maybe a little more difficult is, so all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? I've heard it go 30 different directions on what that is. And I don't know exactly what that means. And I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that I'm in the mind of the Apostle Paul and and have that figured out because I don't. But there's different possibilities that people have said that, that, you know, all Jewish people will be saved because they're Jewish. God's not a racist. So I don't know about that. And then other people, well, it's the church or it's this or it's that. Um, It is a mysterious to me. It is. It's very, very mysterious. And and here's, here's what I was meditating on as I was studying this at this point. He didn't tell us to figure everything out, meaning Jesus, did he? He didn't tell us to figure everything out. You know what he did tell us? Go fish. Be fishers of men. Go tell the whole world about my victory over sin, death, and the evil one through my life, death, and resurrection. That's what you can do. You don't need to understand all this to go fishing. And there's a continual call in each one of our life to be salt and light in a broken world where people are hurting. They need good news. There's enough bad news. We need some good news. Go fishing and let him sort it out in the end. There are questions that I have that are not going to get answered. Jesus gave us two questions that we all can answer. He didn't ask us, why is the sky blue? Why do bad things happen? This and that. He said, who do you say I am? And will you follow me? Those are answerable questions that we want to bring to the world around us. So Paul pivots, quotes the Old Testament and says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Zion is a metaphor for Jerusalem. Jacob is another name for the people of Israel. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, there's a covenant word again. God 
and his mercy endure forever. Then he goes on. He says, in relation to the gospel, they are enemies on your account. Pause, please. The word enemy, you look it up in Greek, because our New Testament was written in Greek and translated into English. The word enemy is the Greek word ekthros. And that word ekthros means hostility, hostile. And so we, we tend to think of an enemy, it's like, you know, better protect myself from my enemy. No, he's saying they're hostile. They're hostile. And Paul uses the same word in Romans 8, 7, when he says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile, ekthros, towards God. Important, I think we make that distinction. So he says, but in relation to God's choice, they are beloved, older brother, on the account of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also, they may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all, in the Greek all means all, in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. And then Paul blows a worship gasket and just is blown away by the own things that he just wrote. And he goes into this doxology and he says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, this mystery and this miracle of salvation. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it would be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Can we say amen as a group together to that? Amen. So how should we respond to this mystery and miracle of salvation? Our roots and all of all that come with that. And I was praying about this. Like this isn't a go home and check three boxes kind of, kind of message. Our response is worship and prayer. That's our response. Just like Paul, after he got through all this, he just said, oh, the depths of the riches of God. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We are going to respond in worship. We stand. We're going to sing about the great I am, who's the king of the universe, the king of all things, the Lord and Savior of all. We're going to sing about him, and then we're going to pray. I 
the great I am, who is worthy, none beside thee, God Almighty, the great Every one of us knows somebody, whether it's family, friend, co-worker, neighbor, that's not following Jesus. And I want you to call a couple people to mind, and we're going to pray for them right now. Father, we lift our loved ones, family, friends, neighbors that we know personally that need to know how much they're loved. Would you let your love, Heavenly Father, break through to their hearts, remove the misconceptions that they have about you as God, because maybe the, what they heard in church or how other Christians may have treated them. Lord, show them your love in the face of your Son with that perfect love. Let that love break through, open their hearts and minds to Christ in them, the hope of glory. Lord, you've revealed your son to us. We want them to know, and we know how much more you want them because you love them perfectly. Father, we look at our world and... It's some things that we're seeing and hearing are hard to fathom. And I know all of the evil that's perpetuated in so many different ways. Lord, you haven't forsaken anybody. So we pray what's going on, Lord, in the, in the, in the wars, that you're the God of peace. You're the Prince of Peace. We ask for, for an end to it all, Lord, through peace. You, Lord Jesus, we're going to continue to ask you, the Prince of Peace. God, awaken hearts and minds to to you, the true Messiah. And Lord, we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. We know that in the life to come, when you come, there will no longer be sin or sorrow or war or death or any of that. We're longing for that, Lord. And as we continue to walk out as your people, we're trusting you. I'm asking for healing physically for everyone who needs physical healing, that you would release the grace of healing. We trust you for that. Lord, where there's relational strife, bring healing. May may there be forgiveness and reconciliation. God, bring financial breakthroughs for those struggling. We lift all our burdens and put them at the foot of your cross, Lord. Thank you for being our burden bearer.
And if you, anybody listening to me, have never come to a place of faith in Jesus, faith is agreeing with Jesus about who he is. He is the Savior and Lord of all. And just agree with him. Say, I believe. I agree, Lord. Take my life. Do with my life what you, what you want. I want to turn away from being in control of my life to giving you the keys. Lord, we do that. We commit and recommit knowing how committed you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Guys, I, we did it, okay? We made it through Romans.